Hello and welcome to the menu. Monocle's program on great food, drink and hospitality. I am Markus Hippi. This week we meet three restaurateurs who have found success and brought something new to their cities. They include Fatih Tutak, owner of restaurant Turk in Istanbul, that received two stars as soon as Michelin launched its guide to the city. When you have first time something, you never forget, right? So that's bring you back. And it's touching your heart. We like to touch hearts. We feed your soul. In Singapore, we visit a restaurant that has redefined what pasta means for the city-state's diners. And you just really need to speak to the door through uh, your hands, okay? Understanding the language of the door. And of course, for different shapes, they speak a different language. So you need to understand. And that takes time to, to build that relationship. All that and much more ahead in the next 30 minutes here on The Menu. First to Turkey. The country's gastronomy scene got a boost in October when Michelin launched its first guide in the city. Its star is Fatih Tutak, owner of the restaurant Turk, which was awarded two stars. He talked to Monocle Istanbul correspondent Hannah Lucinda Smith about his career, his cooking style and one of his signature dishes. When the Michelin inspectors came to Istanbul last year, one chef stood out above the rest. My name is Fatih Tutak. I'm the chef and owner at Turk Fatih Tutak in Istanbul. Fatih Tutak opened Turk, his first restaurant, in 2019. Three years on, it's won two Michelin stars for its fresh Asian twist on classic Turkish cuisine. I was lucky enough to have breakfast with Tutak recently and he prepared one of his best-known dishes, raw cured bonito, muskmelon, caviar and avocado. This is one of the signature uh, starter these days. But we change fish dish every two weeks because we work very micro-seasonal. When the season change, fish is left from Istanbul, we have another fish. Tutak was born in Istanbul and aged 20 he moved to Asia where he worked in some of the world's best kitchens in China, Thailand, Singapore and Japan. Three years ago, he returned to Turkey, bringing what he had learned in Asia back to his mother cuisine. The way Japanese people prepare fish is, I think, amazing. So, I use my Japanese techniques to create a new Turkish flavor with this dish. So, it's very clean and it's very fresh because freshness is important in Japanese cuisine. That's why we're always having fight with the fishermen. So we need to have always very fresh fish. So if we don't have, we reject and then we, we order again. So now he knows how fresh I want. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is very fresh fish. And also after we cure, we smoke with cherry wood. Slightly smoked, you can smell. Oh yeah. yeah. Nice. So, shall we start? Yeah, absolutely. So, what I do now, I have the fillet of two smoked uh, large bonito, we call Torik in Turkey. I'm gonna brush with the tomato reduction. So why did you decide to come back? 
as a chef, you learn and you work with many different chefs. And I think you need to have your own style one day. For me, I have to make people understand my cuisine, my Turkish cuisine. It was quite difficult to make it this in abroad. So I need to come back to do this from the heart of the Turkish cuisine. This is uh, the juice of a uh, uh, wild cucumber pickle and there's a garum inside, anchovy garum. So we made uh, two years ago. We cook with thyme. It's, it's make us, I think, special because I think aging process, pickling process is, is quite unique in our cuisine. So we mustered this actually after. So, celery oil. You see how green it is. Again, yeah, what a color. It's so intense. It's, yeah. Dill oil. And olive oil. Extra virgin olive oil. We are olive oil country. The avocado is come from Antalya. So we use mostly local product. Even the caviar produced in Adana. So they're exporting because caviar is course expensive luxury ingredients but this is a beluga caviar it's quite good so we use a Turk always a good quality of caviar which is a I'll show you you want this yeah, you have definitely. a breakfast <laughs> I give you a breakfast I think this is the best breakfast yeah, I'll ever have. and then just yeah just Having <laughs> cow, so breakfast with caviar, right? This is life, yeah. Yeah. Put some bread onion here. Then avocado. So we cover this onion with avocado. Then caviar, of course. A lot of caviar. Here you go. Ready. That looks absolutely amazing. That green color is just stunning. Yeah. That is absolutely delicious. That the sauce is just incredible. Yeah, the sauce is. It's a little of, uh, um, you know, this green oils. It's make very fragrant. It, the flavors are so intense in it. Yeah. Really are. When you have first time something, you never forget, right? So that's bring you back and it's touching your heart. We like to touch hearts. We feed your soul at Turk. It's not only having a dinner, it's a theater. If you want a table, book now. Reservations are currently full until summer. But Titak is opening a second restaurant in Istanbul this year and I can guarantee it is worth the wait. For Monica in Istanbul, I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith. Now here in London, Dalston has cemented its status as one of the centres of the capital's nightlife and also as a place where new, often more experimental restaurants and bars open. One of the recent launches includes Moo, a bar, a Japanese restaurant and a live music venue. It comes from a team that already has experience from operating in East London as their other venue, Brilliant Corners, is located just a few doors down. Rest 
Estrotters and music enthusiasts Amit and Anish Patel are the founders, and I met Amit at Midori House Studio One to talk more about the concept they had created. It's certainly about live music, certainly about Japanese food, and it's certainly about doing something different to what we've been offering at Brilliant Corners, which is just a few doors down. Can you tell me about this approach? How much market research have you conducted and and what was the thinking when you were trying to figure out what kind of a restaurant would work just a few doors down from your from your other venue, Brilliant Corners? Well, we knew we didn't want to do anything repetitious and we knew instinctively that, you know, there aren't enough great live jazz venues around and we knew lots of great musicians that we've worked with at Brilliant Corners and we just thought this place should exist it would be great if it did exist London should have a place like this certainly it's a place that me and my brother would like to go to and so we wanted to make it different to Brilliant Corners but make it centered around live music. I think it's interesting that what is indeed both venues have is is how important the role of music is in these venues. How was the idea first born with Brilliant Corners already? Again, it was the thinking that a place like this should exist. Our friends run a party called Beauty and the Beat, and they are also friends with the sort of London incarnation of David Mancuso's Loft, and they would hire, you know, suitable spaces. Um, and, inst- and just for one-off parties, monthly parties, they would install their sound system. But the amount of work it took to deliver that system, um, host the party and take it down, gave my brother and I this this feeling that it's such a shame there isn't a permanent venue to just have a system like this. So it was born out of out of that, really. Mm-hmm. What about the other aspects of, of Moo, the restaurant? I'm wondering... What is the relationship with, between Moo and Brilliant Corners in terms of, say, the music, the lights, the atmosphere, what the place feels like? When you have this relationship with the other restaurants so close, how similar or different did you want them to be? We certainly wanted there to be some visual cues that a customer could, could recognize as, ah, there is some connection between the two spaces. Um, and we didn't want to, we felt it unnecessary to completely you know, rip up the accepted wisdom. I mean, the lights we have are are great and they work great and they're, you know, they're, people kind of associate the lighting with us. So we thought, ah, we'll just put the moons over the bar this time um, instead of where they are in Brooding Corners, which is over the main uh, restaurant area. Tell me about the food offering as well. What was the approach? Again, so if we're doing great sushi, sashimi, in in brilliant corners we wanted to address another aspect of japanese cooking and there's a binchatan charcoal grill there and the sort of the menu is based around fireside cooking and the music music is live music um i suppose it's varied it's not only jazz music but it's um working with the musicians that we've worked with on our previous projects i guess over 10 years now at, at both brilliant corners and and giant steps we certainly don't want it to be the case that it's it's background music. Uh, having said that, um, we didn't want it to be a sort of serious, formal concert hall type venue either. So we're hoping for a kind of perfect middle ground between something casual and fun, but when the moment comes, can also be quite serious and engaging. 
What is interesting is that, well, Brilliant Corners is turning 10 years soon and 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 that place is something that is, is, is pretty rather well known in East London, at least if you go to those corners. People know that place and it's got a great reputation and, and Moo is continuing this success just a few doors down. I'm wondering, what have you learned about the nature of of hospitality industry and this business in the last decade? Um, I'm still learning. I still don't feel like I'm a seasoned operator. I'm still figuring out new stuff for the first time. I always feel like I'm like an imposter in this industry, really, or, or late to the game. Um, there's so much to learn. But I guess looking back over 10 years, I think my brother and I are just grateful to have been able to work with the musicians and DJs and, and, and kitchen staff and front of house staff that we managed to. Lots of lots of them we've worked with for many, many years now. And I think that's the that's the key thing to it. We have an established relationship with these people and we're grateful to be able to have that. You t- you said that you still suffer from, was it imposter syndrome, the, the, the term you used, but I'm still wondering, you know, considering how much you've done over the years, what have you learned about what works and what doesn't? I'm wondering when it comes to fine-tuning of these concepts, for example, what Brilliant Corners has been like and what Moo is like. Have you been changing anything? And you know, do you have a clearer vision of what the audience wants? That's a good question, actually, because just recently I was looking through just old papers and, and, and old emails and I looked at some of the initial menus, the way that we, we first opened Mew and, and how we designed it. And you know, I was pretty embarrassed, actually. Like It was such a... It wasn't. It wasn't terrible, but it what it was a million miles apart from what it is now. And I suppose we never would have we never would have known that without actually trying things out. So I think I guess I could say I learned that you don't really know about how to what sort of menu, what price point, how to structure it until you've had a try basically, and you just make tweaks week on week. Can you tell us more about those changes and, for example, what those first menus were like compared to what we have now? Too many dishes, too many kind of good value, but but smaller dishes, smaller plates. And the customer was just therefore just always gravitating towards the, the sort of snack style offerings that we that we provided. Our thinking behind that was just we wanted it to be welcoming and, and approachable and for customers to not see too many high numbers and make them think that, even if they're coming just for a light meal and to enjoy the music, they can still not feel intimidated by what's an overly kind of terse menu. Um, but there was too many of them, and I guess maybe too much prep for the kitchen, and then spend wasn't quite high enough given the work that was being put in. And so it was just slowly just observing the way that customers were reacting to the menu that made us kind of land on where we're at now. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, if you want to tell us about what kind of things you have planned for the future when it comes to the future of Mew and Brilliant Corners? I feel like the future of Mew is, is to consolidate now and just work on trying to make it as good a place as any for the musicians to perform at whilst trying to win new customers into enjoying live music whilst they're having a good meal. And so I guess a time to reflect and I'd love it if our chefs in that kitchen who who do amazing i think you know i don't like to make um unequivocal statements but i'm fairly confident these are the best and most correctly executed mackie rolls you know in, in in our postcode so i'd love to be able to shine more of a light on the work that they do next year what's your idea of great hospitality just be able to read the customer knowing if they want to be 
you know, left alone, but intervening at the right moment or knowing if they need a bit of um, table chat and, and making that uh, process as fluid and, and unawkward as possible. And just making sure all the elements are right. Good food, good drinks, music not too loud, but loud enough. And yeah, a, a feeling that, you know, it's, it's, it's fun the moment you walk in, basically. Amit Patel co-founder of Moo, a bar Japanese restaurant and live music venue in London, Stolston. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Next to Singapore, where one restaurant has redefined what pasta means for Singaporean diners, Forma opened already in May last year, but it's still a feat to get a reservation there with tables booked out months in advance. Forma's chef founder Lee Yum Wak quit his accounting job to travel around Italy, learning how to make regional pastas. He returned to Singapore to run a private dining venture, Ben Fato 95, and then opened his restaurant former last year. Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant visited former to speak with Lee about the art of pasta making. So I was um, previously an accountant. I was trained as one professionally. Um, I've always been building up you know, to that profession since I was young because my father was also uh, a financial auditor. This only kind of... Uh, I mean, I, I, the transition came about when... Uh, um, when I was in Italy, actually, uh, that was kind of how it threw me down this path of pasta making because uh, I was in Italy, in, in Bologna, and um, I had uh, a very uh, astoundingly surprising and good dish which uh, basically cannot be found in Singapore, okay? And that kind of broadened my horizon and opened my eyes in, into the whole world, a much bigger world of handmade pasta. Uh, and the dish was created with such finesse and, um, you know, it just caught me thinking, how come this dish, you know, although it's traditional and Singapore being a very, um, in terms of Italian cuisine here, being very um, developed, you know, it's, it's very matured, does not have any dish that is close to what I had, you know. So that is uh, something which spiraled me down this this rabbit hole of, of, of pasta fabrication. So I, from, from there, I started researching, started talking to people, started reading up more, uh, even, of course, taking on, you know, side projects, because at that time, of course, I was still, I, I still had my day job. Stick, taking on side projects, making pasta at home. Uh, so yeah, it's in my small little, um, you know, kitchen at home. So uh, it was then in 2017, I decided because I was at crossroads in my financial career at that point, uh, it was either I continued down this path or, you know, when the, uh, we felt the time was right for me to just kind of extricate myself from this uh, professional career and give uh, food services, I mean, food and beverage a shot. And it was also at that time, I, I had a friend who had an opening in a restaurant. Cause he, he runs a restaurant in Singapore, very well-known restaurant called Artichoke. And he had an opening and he said, you know, why don't you jump on board and uh, I'll show you what it's like to be in F&B. He knows that I've always been in and out. The clocks were running and turning and I always had this uh, dream to be in F&B and to run my own space. And he's like, no, but you know, that's great and all, but you really need to have uh, a real hands-on experience, you know, and 
So that's why I went on board and from there I, I felt that you know this could actually work out and I decided to uh, take on pasta making. What was the dish in Bologna? Tortellini, which is very different from tortellini that uh, we encounter in Singapore. Uh, most, most tortellini that we find here are actually machine-made. look very different, different fillings, uh, served in a very different, um, with a very different condiment. Uh, so that's why we actually have that dish um, replicated as closely as possible to the ones that we find traditionally in, in its origin in, in Bologna. Once you decided to go into pasta making, how did you learn to actually make the pasta? So it started just, you know, from just looking at different sources of inspiration, usually internet, uh, maybe in, I think Instagram at that time, watching television, you know, that helps a lot. Um, there were a lot of food channels, you know, but I think it was mostly uh, a more hands-on, a more hands-on approach because what I learned is that pasta making is actually a very tactile experience and you just really need to speak to the dough through uh, your hands, okay? Understanding the language of the dough. And of course, for different shapes, they speak a different language. So you need to understand and it takes time to, to build that relationship, you know? So we're currently sitting in Forma, your new restaurant. Can you tell me about it? So uh, Forma is... I mean, it's kind of like any restaurant you find in Singapore. You know, it's got a full service um, offering. Um, the menu is uh, built, constructed, as with all traditional Italian menus where you get your antipasti, you get your primi, the secondi, and dolce. You know, we've got a very extensive list uh, in terms of the beverage menu. But what sets us apart from most, if not all, restaurants is that we have a very focused pasta fabrication program which centers around oval pasta making techniques. Very skill-based program. Okay, so every shape that, we, uh, that comes out of the pasta room that's on the menu, they are traditional. And the sauce to pasta pairings, as much as possible, uh, it lends um, from, you know, from the original recipes that you find in, in the regions that the pasta is from. So that's kind of like uh, what we do here. So we do, yes, we do Italian food. Uh, we are built as with, any, as with any Italian restaurant, but we have a very deep focus in pasta fabrication. So as you mentioned, your pasta menu has really specific regional recipes that probably we wouldn't ever see in Singapore. Could you tell me about maybe one of the regions and the sauce and pasta that you've decided to highlight? So we have a dish right now uh, for the summer menu, which is coming to a close real, really soon. Uh, we have a pasta that you probably wouldn't find in Singapore. Actually, you wouldn't find this uh, pasta in uh, in any part of this part of, I mean, in, in Asia or any part of um, in any country in, in this half of the world, uh, it's a pasta from Sardinia. It's called Lorigitas. Uh, what it looks like, uh, they're just like braided circular rings. Okay, it's um, a pasta that's fashioned, or well, the shape is fashioned after iron rings, which in the local dialect, if I'm not mistaken, is called Loriga. 
Loriga are those rings that are used to um, work animals, um, like horses, um, sheep, uh, buffalo, working animals. Um, at the end of the day, they'll tether them uh, in the stable or whatever. Those rings are what um, Lorigitas are fashioned after, and they're very time-consuming, laborious, and um, quite difficult to do properly, of course. You can definitely do any pasta, but uh, in terms of how well it's made, uh, it really depends on the maker. So if you want to make them really well, um, they're not that easy to do. And of course, very, very time-consuming. So um, it's a Tuesday afternoon, and right before we started the interview, a lot of school children were crowded outside the window watching your pasta makers and you at work. Could you tell me about why you decided to make your pasta station so public? Um, there's a huge window. It's always difficult to communicate uh, the craft of pasta making through a dish just by setting the dish in front of the, the guest. Uh, it's a little bit hard to communicate how the pasta is actually made because, uh, you know, when it comes with the sauce and everything, um, with other elements uh, that comes with the dining experience, you know, with your, your, you know, the people that you come with, uh, the conversations that flow, the great wine that is being poured in front of you, and the other excellent dishes that are served alongside the pasta, the craft tends to get uh, lost a little bit, you know. So we find that having a showcase on how the craft is actually being done on a daily basis for diners to, to peer in uh, as and when during their experience, it helps communicate the laboriousness or, or the labor intensiveness uh, and perhaps you know, the, the nuances in folding a particular shape uh, entails. You know? So that is really uh, how we try to communicate the craft through visuals, okay? Because there's only so much that <laughs> words can put across and frankly speaking uh, if you look at our menu it or even there's like a I think there's like a QR code where you can scan and then you, you brings you to a landing page that talks about the past frankly speaking you know with all those words uh, you don't have people reading them really okay they're just there to have a good time with their friends they're just there to have the uh, you know the meal very few people understand that and take the time to read okay uh, so that is why we find that having this showcase, this, um, you know, with this glass box with big windows is our best way of communicating to diners what really goes behind uh, the pasta shapes and of course to tell them this is why, I mean, to have a space dedicated, you know, for just to make these few shapes, are, it's a way to demonstrate uh, how serious we are about how the pastas are made. Lee Yumwa, chef founder of the Singapore restaurant former there in discussion with Monaco's Naomi Shu Elegant. Let's next hear the week's hospitality headlines. Here is Monaco's Lillian Fawcett. The value of Japanese food exports hit a record high of 1.2 trillion yen, or about $9.3 billion in 2022, according to newly released data. A weak yen and growing demand from the restaurant industry as pandemic restrictions ended helped sales surpass the previous annual high by November. Exports of seafood and alcohol were especially strong. 
a famous 40-year-old Nashville restaurant is to close. The owners of family-run Arnold's Country Kitchen announced on social media that they were ready to retire, having run the restaurant since they opened its doors in 1982. The eatery became known for its meat and three plates, which offered a protein with sides, including southern classics like mac and cheese, green beans and creamed corn. French winemakers are warning their industry is under threat, as more young people turn to beer instead of wine and others stop drinking altogether. Industry figures say wine consumption had already slumped since 1960, from an average of 120 litres a year to 40. They partly blame public health campaigns aimed at reducing alcohol consumption. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thanks, Lillian. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you are listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. Our studio engineer was Kellen McLean. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Brilliant Corners by Thelonious Monk. Thanks for listening.